Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, we are back. Welcome to Series Six, um, Blue Murder Club. This series, we are um, we've got a theme, haven't we, Lauren? Sorry. Ish. Hello, Lauren. Hello, hello. How are you? We're back, baby. <laughs> yeah, baby, we're back. Oh yeah, can't wait. How you doing? You alright? How you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good to be back. Thank you very much for asking. Oh, I've missed it. Yeah, I've really missed it. Yeah, to be honest, I've missed it too. And I've missed you guys. We've missed you. Missed you so much. Um. So yes, here we are. Series six. Can't believe it. Series six. Can Wowza. you believe it, Lauren? Six series in. I know. What thought? a lot of hard work that's been. Mental. I'm grey. I'm saggy. <laughs> <laughs> I have no voice left, <laughs> and my eyes are crossed. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Talk the ears off a donkey. <laughs> so yeah, do you want to tell everyone what this series theme is? Sure can. It's bloody Britain. Woo woohoo! <clears throat> bloody Britain, it is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Sounds like a horrible histories episode. It actually. does, doesn't yeah, it? I like it though. Well, I was thinking of all the um, song names with Britain in it, song titles and all, but they're all quite. Are they really? Oh, like all of the old-fashioned songs. Mm. Oh, like Royal Britannia, I just sung to you before mm. we began. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, nothing seemed to fit, so I thought, fuck yeah. it. Bloody Britain it is. Yeah, bloody Britain it is. Because we're going to just do um, cases from the British Isles, aren't we, this series? Yeah, which I'm really looking forward to, funny enough. Yeah, last year we was away, this year we're home. We're home. We're home and away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're kicking off... Um, this series with a very big case, aren't we? With a belter. Yeah, it's the case of Levi Belfield, who you said he had a few other names, didn't you? The bus stop killer, the bus stop stalker and the hammer man. They're all quite chilling, aren't they? Yeah. Disgusting. Yeah. Apparently, he'd stalk his victims. Like, he'd go out at night when it was dark. And you know when a bus goes by and the lights from inside the bus? Yeah. You can, it lights up all the passengers? Yeah. That's what he did. <gasps> So then he could see if there was any, like, females on their own uh, before they got off. And yeah. And he'd follow them and that, but... He ugh. looks like fucking Percy Pig, doesn't he? I keep calling him Fatty Boom Boom. Do you not think he looks like the cartoon? <laughs> you know who I'm on about? 
He's just a thug, isn't he? He looks yeah. like every like doorman from the nineties when I used to go out when I was youngster. They all look like that with the big old rings. Yeah, yeah. and the big like um, coat, like the wool coat, kind of crombie kind of yeah. thing, and the skinhead and the dead behind the eyes gaze. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, he just looks like a generic thug. Yeah, like back when doorman were called bouncers. That's what he looks like. Yeah, and that's what he was. I her, yeah. you, you can like dress up all you want. The psychology of the man. He's just a thug. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's thug. Thug. Yes, not thug with a th, but with a th. <laughs> I was going to say fuck. I'm probably going to like drop my drop quite a lot of my H's and stuff this episode because it does wind me up. Yeah, it's just is disgusting. He's vile. Excuse for a human being, he's man. So, so shall we get to it? <clears throat> We've tried decided to split the case this week as normal. I'm mm-hmm. going to go for the backgrounds. You're going to do the aftermath, and we're going to mm-hmm. meet in the middle. The victims, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's go on this roller coaster of a ride, shall we? Let's do this. Let's go. Welcome back, and we here we go. So Levi Belford was born seventeenth of May, nineteen sixty-eight, in Isleworth, London. His parents was Jean and Joseph Levi, and his family's heritage are Romani travellers. Even though the name doesn't sound familiar, it's because um, Levi changed his name to his mother's maiden name of Belfield. Jean and Joseph met and married in the 1950s and they had four children, two girls and two boys, with Levi being the youngest. Um, Levi's uncle was involved with a well-known family and because of this, the family was treated with respect within the area. He was doted on by all the family because he was the baby of the brood and he was especially a mummy's boy. When he went to school, Jean would hear nothing of his son's wrongdoing and would, like, fiercely stick up for his son for anything. So if a teacher would, like, you know, you get a phone call home, your son or daughter's been naughty, she wouldn't have it. No, not my son. My son wouldn't do that. Not my son. Um, But it weren't just teachers she used to do this with. It was kids as well. So if he had a falling out at a playground, she would have the kid as well. It's fucking mental. So when Levi was 10, his father passed away from heart failure in 1978. Jean then decided to change her name back to her maiden name of Belfield. So that's the name we all know. In what, what was the name before that? I'll have to find it. It's here somewhere. Oh, it was Rabbits. Rabbits. Yeah, that is significant. <laughs> okay. From I'm sure you've got it, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> from his uh, school days. <sighs> okay. So in 1980s... Uh, in 1980, Levi went up to secondary school to Feltham Comprehensive School. And he states at this age, his mum was still wiping his ass. Age 12. That's how much his mum doted on him now, Kaz. Like, I'm trying to rear that point home because no one says no to Levi. No one turns down Levi. No one... His mum's drummed that into him from a fucking very early age that he is God's gift. He is the be-all and end-all to anything. And that's how he lives. So, yeah, still getting his ass wiped from his mother in secondary school. She kisses the ground he walks on. By now, two years after Joseph dying, Jean starts dating a new man called Johnny Lee. And around this time, Levi befriends an older girl called Patsy Morris. Um, She was 14 and she was blonde. And on the 16th of June, 1980, Patsy goes missing. During a lunch break at school, at the same, um, and she's, it's the same school as Levi's. 
and two days later her body's found near her home. Levi has never ever been charged with this, it's all speculation. But could this be what's to come? She's found fully clothed and strangled to death. Um, strangely, she has two slash three close links with serial killers. One of them being Levi. Another one being Peter Tobin. And the third being Bible John. They were all in and around the area around this time. That's fucking frightening, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's one of our favourites, the Jigsaw Man's book, that says you pass, I think, so many serial killers in a lifetime. And this just goes to show it's true. Um, Sorry. So, Patsy's father, George, stated he received a phone call after her death, threatening him from, and it's from the killer. And he says that it was the voice of a teenage boy. Levi starts taking steroids, here we go, to gain weight and muscle around this age. He was around six foot one and would balloon to around 20 stone in weight. Maybe with roid rage, this is where he has his hatred towards women coming, blonde women especially. And he thinks he's God's gift because of his mother. We get this a lot about fucking steroids, don't we? Yeah. All the time. Drugs in general, innit? Yeah. Yeah, it is. So what he used to like to do, a fun pastime of his, was he'd like to loiter around an old girls' school close by and get into conversations with the students and then turning quite pervy and scare the girls off. He liked nothing more to stalk the girls. And in April 1982, Levi gets in trouble with the police for the first time and he's convicted of two counts of burglary and theft. At the age of 16, Levi leaves school and goes on to a career in petty crime. He's a bouncer, drug dealer, wheel clamper and car salesman, to name a few. Hmm. He then gets um, his next conviction, December 1985. He was 17 and he was stealing cars and he was convicted of three counts of grand theft auto. That's what I like to do because of the game. <laughs> in March 1987, he was convicted yet again for three counts of stealing cars. He hated the police and was always trying to outwit them by changing his name time and time again. And in 1990, he gets done for assaulting a police officer and in 1988 was charged with an offensive weapon. So it's all beginning to start weaving that web of him and his life, really. So Levi meets Rebecca Wilkinson, September 1989. She was 17 and he was 21 and it was in her local pub working as a barmaid. She was a single mum to a toddler and was working to support them both. Levi charmed her, apparently he was charmed, could charm the birds out of the trees. And he charmed her and he shows off his cash like to say, like, look how much I earn, look what I can do, look what I can buy you. And they start to date. Things quickly sour as Levi becomes more and more controlling and abusive. She becomes pregnant after seven months together and this is where it starts to turn where as soon as she turns pregnant and it seems to be the same case as we go on. Like when they turn pregnant, that's it. The control and the abuse starts getting heavier and heavier. Um, so Levi would be there sometimes and he'd like just go off, find another person or go and stay somewhere else and then come back. So he's in and out of her life. He then gets convicted for fraudulent tax disc in 1990, July 1990. So um, he goes in and out of Becky's and her children's life, disrupting and causing chaos each time. 
She gives birth to a baby girl and Levi was absent. Three days later, Levi is waiting for um, Becky at their home and he kicks her down the stairs while the baby's three days old, Gaz. Fuck me. So in Jan 1991, he sentenced um, to ABH leading to a three-month prison sentence, and he serves five months of that. He makes Becca live with his sister while he's away, so she he, he could keep an eye on her. So not only is she allowed, not allowed to live alone, he needs her to live with the sister, so he can keep an eye on her, so she doesn't do one foot out of place. Um, he would rape and beat her continuously for three years until she was brave enough to go to the police. And in June 1992, but she was so scared of him, she dropped all the charges. So he would stalk and rape Becky repeatedly to remind her of his power over her. And he would go on to do this for 15 years, hiding in the shadows, lurking and just constantly barraging her and heckling her and fucking raping her constantly. She had, after that, so in June 1992, for 15 years, she had three more kids by him because obviously he's not wearing protection when he's raping her. He said of women, you keep them and feed them just like pet dogs. He loves to work security on the doors of pubs and clubs and would start fights so he could just get himself off because he liked the violent rages. He meets 23-year-old Joanna Collins while comforting her while he sees her arguing with her boyfriend at the club. She, he was working out on the door. And again, same sort of story. They soon become an item. After three weeks, he takes a phone off of her, gives her another phone with just his number in it so she can't contact anyone, has no focus on the outside world. And then he starts the controlling. Um, and she almost falls pregnant straight away. That's when the abuse starts. Um, and when Levi uh, found out she was like in the family way, he can't become very violent, showing his truth colours. He would punch and kick her while she was pregnant and Joanna gave birth to her daughter in Feb 1996. Now, Joanna was in the same situation to Becky, <coughs> being raped and stalked repeatedly after she had left him. So he's got three, uh, two birds on the go now, but not really because they're not, partners they are literally someone that he can torment every time they thought they had lost him he would just turn up like a bad smell in the shadows and abuse and once again he would put out lit cigarettes out on them joanna has a son by levi this way while he was beginning a new relationship with a new girl we met called emma mills in 1996 Belfield forced one of his partners to spend a night sitting on a comfortable stool. She was so terrified of him that she was too afraid to leave her sitting place and go to the toilet and sold herself rather than move. Belfield even boasted to one girlfriend about his depraved behaviour. He would tell her he was going out and that he would go and rape other women. She found bin bags with a balaclava in, a knife, a magazine with faces of blonde women scratched out. He told her he had pulled a disabled woman from the wheelchair and raped her. Oh, it's just... He told her he hated blonde women and that they deserved to die. That's, Le uh, you're talking about Joanna here, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. Levi, I didn't want to say, yeah. But Levi had began to have brass knuckle dusters and weapons on him at all times, just in case, because he liked the fight. He liked the thrill of a fight. He liked going to the club, but not only that... This is how he starts on victims. 
Emma and Levi was living together and Emma got pregnant with the couple's first child when she gave birth December 1997. She was first harmed by Levi when she spotted Levi with Joanna at a pub from her car. And he asked her to wind the window down and she wouldn't do it. She was fuming with him. She's like, no, I ain't doing it, I ain't doing it. She didn't know of Joanna, yet Joanna knew about Becca at this time. And he was so furious that she didn't do as he asked her to. He's gone over to the passenger side of the door, opened the door, got in and just punched her straight in the face. What, Joanna or Emma? Emma. Oh. She, she, Emma's caught him at a pub with Joanna. Yeah. She didn't know that he was still tormenting them mm. or seeing them or whatever. So she's got the ump with him saying, like, what are you doing You're with your ex? And he's going, wind down the window. And she wouldn't do it yeah. because she didn't listen to him. Like, no one says no to Levi. Mm. He gets in the passenger side and punches her square on the face. <sighs> so... um. In 1991, Emma gives birth to their second child, uh, and this would be Levi's eighth child. His behaviour got worse and worse, road rage, roid rage, I think, mm-hmm. to the max level. He would drive around, van around, with mattresses in the back to drag and rape young girls he was stalking, and it had a baseball pattern too. It speculated he was also now drug taking. So um, I don't know if you picked up on this, but heroin was used quite a bit. That Yeah, he speculated he was using heroin at this point, but it's speculated, I don't know. No, I didn't read nothing about that. I've got if, yeah, mm. so um, that's what I'm saying, I don't know. So, um, And he'd also get his mates in on the act too. Um, he speculated again, <laughs> I've read that the piece of shit was involved in a paedophile <laughs> ring too. Victor Kelly, a notorious paedophile known as Mr. Joe, was known to the police, was on the sex offenders list. He implicated that Levi was in the ring. Mm. So that brings me up to um, 2003. So aged just at 19 and described as a quiet and hardworking young woman, Marshall McDonald was in a gap year student with plans to travel to Australia. Before attending university, she lived with her parents and two sisters and a brother. She was on a gap year while working in a gift shop in town. She was a netball player and a talented violinist. She was attacked by Belford while walking home from the cinema on the 4th of February 2003. She had just been to see Catch Me If You Can with her friends while getting on the 111 bus back home. Where did she live? Was that in London as well? Yeah. Yeah. It was in... Catch Me If You Can is an amazing film. Yeah, yeah, it is. So she was walking from the terminus, which was a 10-minute walk, mm-hmm. from there where she'd got off back to her house. So she was... Um, sorry. <laughs> she was uh, found bleeding to death from horrific head injuries in the, injuries in the street yards from her home in Hampton, South West London. After being bludgeoned together with a blunt in- instrument. So what had happened was the neighbour of Marsha had heard like a loud noise and then like a car door had shut and he's looked out and there was nothing there. So he's gone back to bed and then he's heard in like this really low moaning and it was continuously going on and on. So he's grabbed his wife to come, like, looked out again, and he's seen, like, this pool of blood outside. So he's looked, grabbed his wife, gone down the stairs, they've gone and found Marsha. 
So the murderer had beat her and left her to die shortly after she got off the bus. Marshall spent two days in hospital before succumbing to her injuries. A post-mortem found that she had suffered multiple scale fractures and bleeding around the brain. So what he'd like to do was trawl buses and bus stops for women and like single women. So it's noted that Marshall was on her iPad. No, it wouldn't be. What's it called? The like i nanos, the little ones. An iPod. iPod. Mm. iPod Nano. So she wouldn't have heard him approaching her either. And mm. if young girls like at that age, I had one. I'm sure you did too. You'd have put that in. You wouldn't have heard anything around you because they were saying, wasn't it? Watch out for traffic and that because you won't hear it approaching, like when crossing a road and all that. Yeah, you um, shouldn't walk around after dark with earphones in because no. of that exact reason. Yeah, <laughs> you exactly. can't hear if someone's coming up behind no, you, can you? No, definitely not. So Jack McDonnell, 21, so this was Marsha's brother, speaks of his sister. It was very weird, like her missing piece. She was artistic and everyone remembers her as a lovely person. A lot of people tell me I look like her, which is really weird to hear. Everyone says I do the same face as she did. It's strange to think of how differently I've turned out if she was still around. It's sad because I've grown up never knowing what it was like to have another sister. So sad. Love him. So he was only five years old when his big sister was killed, but the trauma has followed him his entire life. So sad. Mm. So in on the May 28th, 2004, this is a close call, near an industrial state in Isleworth, Kate Sheedy could have been Belfie's third victim, but she realised something was really wrong and she got off the bus. She was 18 years old. As head girl of the school, she had been given a speech at a party she had just organised for her fellow classmates. The, stu uh, the students were due to start their first day of study leave the next day to prepare for their A-level exams. Hey, Kate was hoping to go to university the next year. She carried a pink handbag and wore pink LK Bennett heels. That just takes you so back to the like 2000s, <laughs> doesn't it? And it was a birthday present for her 18th birthday a month earlier. And she went out with her friends to a pub in Twick Twickenham. Twickenham? Twickenham. <laughs> they finished the night with karaoke at the second pub and Kate got on the H22 bus back to her home world in Isleworth. She crossed the road to avoid Belford because she got really strange like you know, your gut just tells you something's not quite right. She had seen him parked up, didn't like the look of him, so she's crossed the road to avoid him. And I think that's the only reason she's still alive today. Well, she said that the car was idling, but the lights weren't mm. on. So she, that's why she knew there was something up, yeah. didn't she? So she crosses the road to avoid him. And as she stepped out into the road, the van sped towards her, hitting her face on the wheel went over her body once and the driver then reversed back over her before leaving her for dead in the street. In a state of shock, Kate tried to stand up only to stumble a few steps before falling back down. At the time, she didn't know the extent of her injuries. So, of course, you're not. You're just going to try and get up, aren't you? Thinking, oh, I've just been knocked up, but I'm okay. But obviously, she manages to scramble for a phone, calling for an ambulance and her mother. She phones her mother to tell her she was dying. So sad. Have you heard the phone call? No. Oh, it's awful. Her parents come uh, coming from the house where Kate lived just a few years, yards away, found her lying in the street with her belongings strewn across the road. Remaining exceptionally calm, Kate later said the first thing she did was to ask her mum to pick up her new shoes that she had got. Did she? Yeah. <laughs> she was worried about her shoes. Yeah, Good girl. Her. 
she was in so much pain she told her parents she thought she was going to die saying I love you daddy I love you mummy Kate bravely manages to give police a statement as she recovered from her horrific injuries her lower back had been ripped open her liver was split in two she had multiple broken ribs and a broken collarbone she had managed to keep breathing despite one lung being punctured and the other one collapsed Kate survived but suffered multiple injuries and spent several weeks in hospital making slow progress with her physical wounds. Kate had to also face emotional wounds too. She was scared to board a bus or walk alone in the street. She was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and mild depression in 2004. Showing inspirational courage and determination, she managed to recover in time to start at York University in 2005 studying history and politics in 2007 kate faced her attempted killer but that's for another later in the story a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But, yeah, so... That's um that's where I got to. So yeah, Kate's um Kate's case they they did have like they opened a case for it and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing, but because she didn't die, mm-hmm. they didn't put as many resources to it as they would do if it had been a murder as opposed yeah. to attempted murder. So no one was caught for that crime. <clears throat> I'm true. But there was an it? investigation, but no one was caught for the crime. Madness. Um, I know you touched on Marsha McDonald's. Was anyone um, arrested for that crime? Oh, sorry, yes. Uh, well, they had a suspect. Sorry about that. That's all right. They had a suspect. Oh, God, sorry. So it was <laughs> a young male, and he uh, was called... It was a young male named Sharp, and he had mental illnesses. Um, he was involved in another attack a couple of years prior to that, quite a brutal attack, but it wasn't a murder. Um, however, he was sectioned while the other attacks had happened. He was sectioned, so there was no way he could be the killer. They blamed him for that mur- that murder, didn't they? Mm-hmm. They thought he'd killed Marsha yeah. and they put him the away. Girls, yeah. And even though he had an alibi, do you know what his alibi was? Go on. 
He was watching that Martin Bashir, Michael Jackson documentary. Yes, I do know. Yes. Yeah. So, because um, like you couldn't record things back in them days. It you was... could record things. <laughs> what back then? Oh, there was VCRs in the eighties. You could definitely record things oh, in the early nineties. No, but I mean, like on your telly. Yeah. So it was more than likely you watched it live. I reckon the whole world watched that. Yeah. So, but um, but a plus like his family vouched for him, but obviously that mm-hmm. nobody believed him, and he did get put. He got sent down for that crime. Like wow. he was accused of her murder. On very little evidence, it was just circumstantial. Yeah. So when um, other women start getting attacked and murdered, no one pieces Marsha's crime with the others because yeah. they think that's a, that's case has been solved. solved. So um, August 19th, 2004, um, Amelie Delagrange, a 22-year-old French national, is attacked at Twickenham, southwest London, on her way home from a night out, and she is found shortly after the attack, transported to hospital, but she dies just after midnight. So, Amélie was a student from a small village in northern France, just outside Paris, I think she was born, and was studying in the UK in the hope of improving her English. Her parents, Dominique and Jean-Francois Delagrange, described her as a happy, smiling and loving daughter. And she passed her bachelor's degree, and she lived in Spain and then Manchester before she settled down in London in April 2004. So she uh, was a keen linguist and she was studying applied languages and supporting herself by working in a bakery in Richmond called Maison Blanc. It's there that she met her boyfriend, Olivia Lanfon, a fellow French expat in London. Olivia said he instantly noticed Amélie because she was always smiling. Um, Amélie was due to return to live with her family in the autumn but told her parents she was enjoying living in London so much she was planning to extend her stay. I suspect that had a lot to do with Olivier. I agree. <laughs> I don't know why. You just read the word Olivier and you think, hmm, sexy. Yeah. Ooh, la, la. I don't French know. French guy. Woo-woo. Is it just me? <laughs> it's not Oliver. If it was Oliver, you'd be like, oh, Oliver. But it's <laughs> Olivia. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, Amelie and Olivia are an item and she's loving life. She's living her best life. She's 22 years old. She's living in a beautiful part of London. Plenty of friends. She's got everything going for her. On this night in question, which was a Friday night, August the 19th, Amelie had made plans to go for drinks with some of her French friends at Crystal's Wine Bar in Twickenham. Um, At around 8.30, she called Olivia and she asked him to join them and then to spend the weekend at her house while her landlady was away. But Olivia was moving house and he decided not to join her, but he said he would come and see her the next day. Um, after telling him she wouldn't be home late, she put the she put down the phone, um, and then she had four glasses of wine before deciding to call it a night, and she headed home. Um, according to her friend, she wasn't a big drinker, but I thought oh, four glasses of wine is quite a lot for me. Mm. <laughs> I'm sure when I was 22, it weren't though. <laughs> um, so at, uh, so she's decided to make her way home, and she, like most Londoners, she uses public transport. <clears throat> so at. Uh, just after 9.30pm, there's CCTV footage that showed Emily boarding the 267 bus, which was outside the old, old post sorting house, which is Weatherspoon's pub in Twickenham, to make her way home. Um, now, they, all these places that we're discussing, Twickenham, um, Arlesworth, Hampton in particular, they're really nice bits of London. Mm. They're not rough and ready parts. They're like really like only, you know, it's a nice place mm-hmm. to live, really nice place to live. Violent crime isn't doesn't happen there um which makes all these crimes really stand out so we don't really know what happened she boarded the bus 
but for some reason, maybe those four glasses of wine cup and she fell asleep, but she accidentally missed her stop and she got off at the end of the line at Fullwell Bus Garage, which was, it wasn't that long after, it was probably only about 20 to 10, it was only 10 minutes, but she missed her stop. So she'd gone past her stop and she got off at this, um, at the end of the line and she decided to walk back in the dark in the opposite direction back towards home. So there's CCTV, she's talking to the driver and he says something like, oh yeah, there'll be another bus that will take you back, but it's not for another 20 minutes or so. So she thinks, oh, it's quicker for me to walk, I'll just, I'll just walk back. So there's CCTV of Emily, she's walking along the road and she's got, uh, I think she's got a carrier bag and a handbag, just a pair of jeans, like sort of crop jeans on and a t-shirt and a jacket. She's not just provocatively, not that that is obviously, <laughs> but I just want to add that she wasn't wearing anything where a perv like Levi driving by would mm. think, oh, oi, oi, let's get, let's, uh, let's shout at her or anything like that. She's just wearing the most basic plain clothing and um, nothing eye-catching at all. So uh, I just thought, oh, do you know what? It's just like, like sometimes when I used to work in London, I used to walk home on my own and I'd always make sure I put a pair of trousers on. Even if I'd been wearing like a dress or something, when I was out at the club, I would make, make sure I put something on. Just, I don't know, I just think when you're a woman, you feel more safe when you've got trousers on. Then you make feel more harder. You're more vulnerable mm. when you've got a dress on, I think. But yeah, oh, that just that just struck me that she just had the most normal outfit on, nothing eye-catching at all, but she was blonde. And this is, seems to be what attracted him oh, to yeah. all of his victims. He had a thing about blondes. Um, so, yeah, she's just strolling home, walking down the road. And the last bit of her walk was to cut across Twickenham Green, which is like a cricket pitch in the middle of the, sort of like the village area. <clears throat> I think it's a bit like a square. So there's uh, all shops and businesses on one half of it and then there's residential houses on the other half. And I think she cut from like the shop side across to the way that houses are, which is where she lived. Um... She didn't realise this, but Belfield must have clocked her from when she was inside the bus because it's dark by now and she's just lit up. That bus is lit up like a Christmas yeah. tree and he can see every single passenger that's in there. He's clocked her and he's followed her in his van. He's overtaken her in the van and then he's parked and waited for her to pass him. Um, So it's believed that he was waiting for her to pass and there is quite strong evidence to support that Belfield engaged with Amelie at some points. So there's a bit of her journey that's not covered by CCTV and you see this time and time again with Belfield he's got the luck of the devil mm. every single thing is on CCTV every inch of these women's last journeys apart from when they encounter him it's mad how he's got away with it but he has got the luck of the devil but um, the, I think the investigating officers worked out how quickly it would have taken her to walk from this CCTV camera to this one mm. and they worked out that she must have paused because it took too long so that yeah. with, they think that he's probably tried to chat her up. Yeah. Um, he did have form of just going up to women on the bus bus stops and just calling them slags and things like that. So I don't know why. If you're trying to chat someone up, why are you call them a slag? But that is what he used to do. He didn't and take rejection too kindly either, did he? Even if you like the look of him, which why would you? But even if you did, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm a slag. Yeah, I'll go yeah. up yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's hardly the best chat up line in the world. But yeah, it looks like they, there was some kind of a engagement between the pair where she's paused and then she's carried on walking and she started to walk across the cricket pitch and she never got to the other side because he has exploded in a fit of rage he's chased her across the pitch and he's hit her over the head several times from behind with the, with a hammer and um then he took her bag and her phone like both bags and her phone and he drove away 
Um, so she was last seen alive by passers-by about 10 o'clock. And at 20 past 10, she was discovered unconscious in a pool of blood surrounding her head on Twickenham Green by a man called Tristan Beasley Suffolk, who saw her on the cricket pitch. Um, so he raised the alarm. She was taken to West Middlesex Hospital, but she was declared dead shortly after midnight with a huge wound to the back of her head. And she was literally two streets away from where she lived. So you've got to look at that and think, that is Marsha McDonnell all over. Yeah, that is 100%. Exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the police start to investigate and realise that Emily's phone and her handbag are missing. Oh, actually, I think he just took her handbag. He didn't take the carrier bag because um, they found, in the carrier bag, they found a piece of paper and had two phone numbers written on it. And one of them was Olivier's phone number. So they called, the police called it because there was nothing to identify the woman on the pitch. So... They called the number, it was Olivia, and then he said, oh, yeah, it's my girlfriend, it's Amelie. So that's how they found out who she was because um, Belfield had taken her bag, her wallet and all that. <clears throat> so, yeah, her phone and her handbag were missing and it later turned up in the River Thames at Walton Bridge, which was eight miles away. And according to phone records, it had gone off 18 minutes after she'd been attacked. So for that to travel, for that phone to travel... Eight miles in 18 minutes showed the police that whoever was responsible was in a vehicle because you can't walk that fast. You can't even run that fast. So um, they knew they had to scan that CCTV like like nothing's been scanned before. They Mm -hmm. are pinning everything on getting the perpetrator by identifying the car or the vehicle that they're in. Anyway, so like I say, where she was attacked, it was full of like businesses, lots of buses and all sorts of things like that. So there's loads of CCTV for them to scroll through. Um, the police scrolled through about 200 hours worth of CCTV and they pick out a white van that was seen prowling in the area for around 40 minutes up to the time of the attack. And there are a number of distinctive markings on the van and this is how they eventually came to link Belfield with the van and, of course, that he was the attacker. I think one of the front headlights was out, so that sort of like made it stand out. There was um, a bit of a stain on the side from where the petrol leaked I think he'd blacked the back windows out as well. Um, I don't know. I heard a few things about, like, he was a prolific date raper. So I think he, in some of the vehicles that he had, he would put a mattress in, Mm -hmm. date rape some of the young women that he was the doorman at, like the nightclubs. And um, so I wonder if that's why he blacked the windows out. It just occurred to me, possibly. He's such a creep. Um, Yes, so... This is where um, our mate DCI Colin Sutton enters the picture. So Colin Sutton is um, the SIO, I think the Senior Investigating Officer Mm -hmm. for this case. And um, so, yeah, he's got the case and they set up, the police set up a mobile unit on the green and they encourage any witnesses to come forward. Now, um, there's, there's there's a bit of a phenomenon when this sort of thing happens. A lot of women come out of the woodwork and they'll go to the police and they'll say, this sounds like my ex or this sounds like my boyfriend. And it just shows how rife domestic violence is in some places. Mm. And um, in this instance, 129 women came forward and said, point the finger at their men. Wow. Like, this is a really nice place. Like Twickenham's posh. Really? Have you been to Twickenham? No, I don't think I have. I went once to watch the Rolling Stones, but that's it. I nice. didn't go I didn't go to like the little town bit mm. or anything, but... um. But, I mean, yeah, 129 women come forward to say that the men in their lives were capable wow. of this murder. I mean, that's bad, isn't it? Shocking. 
So one name in particular is submitted and the name is Levi Belfield. And this is by his ex-girlfriend. Her name is Johanna Collings. Mm -hmm. Uh, Johanna implores the police to look at her violent ex and explains that he often prowled in the local area and he had a deep hatred of women, blonde women in particular. She then tells them that when they lived together, she found his rape kit in her garage Mm -hmm. and it consisted of her dad's old jacket, a rope and a knife and strangely a copy of Cosmopolitan magazine where he'd scored out the faces of all the blonde women who appeared in the magazine. This disturbing confession projected Levi to the top of the suspect pile and when SIO Colin Sutton acquired Belfield's criminal record, it was described as about an inch thick. (laughs) So Belfield was a man who'd been in trouble for all of his life and had a penchant for violence, especially against women. It didn't take long for DCR Colin Sutton and his team to make the connection between this brutal murder and that of Marsha McDonnell, who had been bludgeoned to death on her doorstep only the year before. As Colin stated, it's extremely rare for this kind of crime to happen, so when it does happen within only a few miles mm. and a year apart, it is more than likely that they would be looking for the same perpetrator. It would be pretty unusual for there to be two yeah. people in the, you know, it's such a small area. It's about, I've written down all of the distances and stuff, but it's tiny amounts. Like, literally, you could walk, you could probably walk to all, between all these places in an hour. Wow. Like, literally, within like two or three miles of each yeah. other, all of these crimes. It's it's very small area. Mm-hmm. And obviously, really it's only within about three years as well. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and then there was also the unsolved attempted murder of Kate Sheedy, as you mentioned earlier, the 18 year old schoolgirl had been deliberately run over in May 2004 and left for dead. Significantly, the attack had happened in Walton Road, Arlesworth, which is only two and a half miles away from Twickenham Green. Um, I'll put that into maps. I couldn't find it anywhere, so I'm going to put it into maps. And it's two and a half miles away. It's wow. ridiculous. You can walk there in less than an hour. Wow. So close. What with the limited resources, because Kate hadn't died, her case hadn't received the level of investigation that it would have if it had been a murder inquiry, mm-hmm. but there was an investigation called Operation Zender. Um, so yeah like you said all of her ribs were broken like her injuries were awful and hats off to her that she went to uni like a year just a year later than what she was intending to fantastic such an inspiration Mm. she's got grit that girl they also started to look at um, any other similar unsolved crimes from the area and they came up with five within a few miles of each other there was uh, Anna Maria Rennie, 17 years old. She was the victim of an attempted abduction at nearby Witten, which was two and a half miles away. Are you okay? I'm so sorry. No, no one's just moving all over the place. The chair's falling down Is on it? me. Every oh, time wait. you say a word, I'm going, yeah. dung. Oh, God. <laughs> um, Sorry. I'll stand up in a minute. So, uh, Anna Maria Rennie, 17 years old, was the victim of an attempted abduction nearby Witten, two and a half miles away from Twickenham Green. She'd fought off her would-be abductor, but was so traumatised that she returned to live in Spain afterwards. Um, they, The police eventually, they flew her back in March 2005, and she identified Levi Belfield Did in she? a police lineup. Wow. Here's another woman. Irma Jagoshi. Irma Degroshi is a hairdresser who was attacked by a stalker while waiting at a bus stop and she was left with a lump on her head bigger than her hand. She's a 34-year-old Albanian hairdresser and she was battered with a blunt instrument as she waited for a bus in Longford Village, West London on December 17th, 2003. 
Um, Irma had been dropped at the bus stop in Old Bath Road by her boss, who had given her a lift from the Definitions Hair Salon in Slough, Berkshire. So again, this is this is the suburbs of West London. It's literally stones throw from all the other crimes. Um, she was waiting for a delayed number 81 bus to take her to her Hounslow home, which should have arrived at half past seven that evening when she took a call from her husband, Astrid. She said he used to ring me every night um, after work, checking that she was okay and whereabouts she was on her journey home from work. So, you know, like if you're just on your way home, you're on your commute, your Mm -hmm. husband rings, you just have a chat while you're waiting for your bus and all that. So that's what it sounds like to me, that kind of thing. Um, On the evening in question, she's on the phone to her husband between about five and ten minutes. And she said her next memory was waking up in hospital hours later with a big lump on her head. She said it was so big it wouldn't fit in her hand. Oh, it makes me cringe wow. thinking about that. Are they all blonde? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's 34, though. She's not a teenager mm-hmm. or early 20s. So um, it's December and it's half seven. It's pitch black. Mm-hmm. You probably couldn't see how old she was. Um, the victim was hospitalised overnight, and she, but she remained off work for a month after the assault. So good on her. Again, she went back to work and carried wow. on with her life. Didn't let it beat her, but... Um, it, there was, um, I think there was a picture of her which was shown at the subsequent trial two weeks after and she still had like two massive black eyes and swelling all over ah. her face. She said she still suffered with pain in the back of her head from um, from it. She gets painful headaches all the time. So this is the thing, even even when you look at the women that survived the attacks, mm-hmm. they still live with um, the, the results of the attack every day. Yeah. You know, you're never going to fully heal. I doubt if, um, if Kate Sheedy is going to be fully like functional as she was before she was run over twice you know yeah i mean all your ribs can heal up but they're never going to heal up as good as new are they um yeah it's It's just a fault really no it's awful uh so she said um yeah she said it hurts a lot and she still has the headaches now anyway there's an eyewitness to this crime it um it's claimed that this is (laughs) this is from later on but nightclub bouncer belfield spotted mr goshi waiting in the dark as he drove past with his friend now, his friend, Sonny Elgaru, was a witness in court and he said he witnessed this. And when it came to Belfield being questioned, he tried to blame it on Sonny that had bludgeoned Irma. So he's saying he'd done it, he's saying he'd done it. But basically, Sonny was in the car, Levi said, he stopped the car and shouted, watch this, before running across the road and attacking her and running off. So that's it, he just sees a woman on her wow. own, chatting on the phone, minding my business, goes to his mate, oh, watch this, runs across. So that is... A clear insight into just how little he cares. Yeah. And how fast he is. Yeah. So fast. Yeah, so literally. quick. For a bone boom, he can move quite quick. Yeah. So, to catch Amelie's killer, the police turned to CCTV of the area where Amelie had made her last journey. And they noticed a white career van driving around at exactly the right time, which made finding the driver of that van imperative. Either he was a suspect or a key witness. As the police investigated further, it was discovered that Levi had access to a white courier van. So now they had to prove it was his van and they had to furthermore prove that it was Levi driving it at the time. So, Levi, I know you touched on it before, his job was as a wheel clamper. So by the definition of that job, he had access to lots of vehicles. And when it comes to court, he uses this as his Mm defence. I've got a load of vehicles. They're all crap. All of my... um, employees drive them as well it weren't me i wasn't there if i was there i didn't do anything he's he's got all the answers yeah he's very cunning i think i don't think he's bright but i think he's cunning like he's got that and he's got luck of the devil like i said yeah so um 
So yeah, there was also, um, I think when the police were appealing for witnesses from the crime that happened that night, there was a cyclist who spotted on the CCTV and you can see him getting overtaken by the white van. And the cyclist came forward and he said that that van was driving at breakneck speed. So obviously it's Belfield driving away from the scene of the crime about to go and drop off the phone into the River Thames. So that was that was brilliant that they had that witness that said about the van driving at speed away from the direction of where the crime had happened. So they had that eyewitness as well, mm-hmm. not just CCTV. Because the CCTV, although there's lots of it, it's not very clear. No. You can't see the number plate, you can't see who's driving it. So they had to do a lot of legwork to prove everything. There's a lot of white vans. You can imagine there's probably thousands oh, of yeah. them in London alone. Oh, yeah. But painstakingly, they literally tracked every single one down. And checked with the owner of the vehicle whether they was in Twickenham wow. that night. Every single one. They had to do that to rule wow. out every single other possibility. It was that that, that, that was Levi's yeah. van. Now, so they've done that. Took them months, but they've done it. More patience than me. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do, after a day, I'll give up. Can't. Yeah. I don't know. I can't yeah. do it. Um, but now they've got proof he was in the van. Because he, he can easily turn around and go, yeah, it's my van. I won't in it. Oh, I gave no. the keys to blah, blah. Stanley all done it, you know. He, he likes blaming Sunny off. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so, anyway, we'll come back to that. So, while this investigation was ongoing, Colin noticed something very significant in Belfield's file. So, Colin Sutton is reading through Belfield's inch-thick file record. And he noticed that in 2002, Levi Belfield lived in Walton-on-Thames. The significance of this being the disappearance and murder of the schoolgirl Millie Dowler. This case had turned cold for Surrey Police when Colin and his team divulged this important find. Here they have a dangerous predator who had a track record of violence and murder against young blonde women who was living in the last place that Millie was seen alive yeah. at the same time she went missing in 2002. Yeah. So now it seems the police have a serial killer on their hands and no firm evidence to bring him in. Don't forget, there's no forensics. Yeah. There's no eyewitness. He's not even on CCTV. But there's lots of circumstantial. Mm-hmm. And obviously anyone who knows him, including his own kids, go, yeah, he's well capable of it. Yeah. Apparently, six days after the murder of Emily, Belfield breaks down in his bedroom, having taken an, anti- an overdose of antidepressants, and he's found by one of his friends. And it's here that Belfield announces, you don't know what I've done. And he's admitted to a mental hospital where he tells staff he's feeling low and suicidal. This becomes a bit of a pattern, actually. You could see that after every attack, he ends up suicide attempts, admitting into hospital, nervous breakdown, like he, yeah. So I don't know whether that shows that he's showing remorse or if it's just his body's reaction to that yeah. that act of violence. I don't know, but that mm. is what happened. So, um, so yeah, he uh, he he um discharged himself the next day. So it sounds like he needs like a day or two to recover in the hospital and then he discharges himself and he goes back yeah. to terrorising his um, poor girlfriend. Um, so at the inquiry into her death, Olivia told the judge that um, he blamed himself, like Emily's boyfriend. He said if I'd have come, she would not have gone home alone that night. I love him. And he's right, isn't he? That's the thing. Can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, he must kick himself for that. Know what I was thinking? If she didn't fall asleep, but it mm. weren't because he had already seen her on the bus. Yeah, I, in my he, he was prowling that area anyway, yeah. so I don't think it would have made no. much. But it depends. What I mean, the bus 
the bus may have dropped her off on the other side of the green. Yeah. So you wouldn't have seen her. He, he, she might have just like by the time he drove along, she would have been indoors. Maybe yeah. I don't know. I'm not too sure about that. But yeah, there's a there's there's always going to be a what, what if. ifs, what I ifs. Know. Yeah. I know. But yeah, poor Olivia. He just I think he blamed he blamed himself at that point. Um, he said she should never have gone home alone. Oh. And he, he did describe Amelie as being quite cautious, like she was quite streetwise, she wouldn't do anything risky. And I suppose walking across um, the cricket pitch at night is a bit risky, but also it's such a safe place, you wouldn't yeah. expect anything bad to happen. Yeah. God um, so, once they had finally arrested Belfield, they needed to prove that he was in the van at the time, and as luck would have it, his girlfriend Emma remembered that night really clearly, as she'd not long had their third child, and it was the first time she'd left home since giving birth. She remembered going to Tesco's on the evening of the 19th of August to get nappies and Levi had picked her up and dropped her and the kids home at nine o'clock and then drive off again, leaving her to unpack the car and the shopping. I'll put it here, gent. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, she just had a baby and he's. she said he was sitting in his phone just texting and making phone calls while she unpacked the shopping. <laughs> just given birth. There's two kids and a baby, but, yeah, crack on. So, um but she's too scared to smite. Obviously, you can't moan at Levi because nope. you'll get a backhander. So, um, anyway, uh, he dropped her off and he drove off. So, it must have been quite late. Bear in mind, an hour later, Emily's. Yeah. So, that's the last time anyone sees her alive. This man moves very quickly. Um, it don't, it's weird, isn't it? He seems to go from naught to zero. Uh, like yeah. 100 in, a, in like a snap. Yeah. I mean, one minute he's literally like domesticated. He. Um, like she said that he'd promised to take her out and because she was running low on supplies and she called him and he weren't answering his phone all that day. So in the end, she got a cab to Tesco's with the kids and that. And while she was in there, he phoned her and he's like, oh, where are you? I've come home and you're not home. And she explained and he said, oh, okay, hold tight, I'll come along and I'll pick you up. And she said while she finished the shopping with the baby, he took the two older children to Toys R Us and bought them toys. Like one hour later, he's doing murdering that. a yeah. girl. Awful. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Talk about Jekyll and Hyde. So, yeah, so he drives off and leaves her there. I suppose she puts the kids to bed and she fancies a cup of tea and she realises she forgot to pick up some milk at Big Tesco's. So she phoned up Levi and it rang once and he switched it off. He rang for one second, actually. One second and he switched it off. And this was at something like 20 to 10. Now, this is very significant because... um, this generated a signal that was picked up at Twickenham Green on his mobile phone. So it proved that he was there at that wow. time. It proved it. And they even tracked down the teal roll receipt in the Tesco's storeroom and found the transaction because they said, can you prove your story? And she said, no. You know, like we were talking to Colin earlier, he yeah. said that Levi only ever gave his girlfriends cash. Yep. They weren't allowed bank accounts. Mm-hmm. So she paid for the Tesco shopping in cash. But she knew what time it was and she knew roughly how much it was for and she... Gave the police a list of items that she'd purchased. And they're, they're Genius, so much more patient than I could ever imagine. But one of the police who was working that case went to the stockroom in Tesco's. Luckily, someone who worked in Tesco's had OCT big time because they had stacked all the teal rolls in date order, which made their job quicker. They'd gone to the 19th of August, found the teal roll, looked through it, found her receipt, Emma's receipt, and it showed that in all the items she bought, there was no milk. It showed what time they'd been to Tesco's and that proved how credible Emma was as a mm-hmm. witness because that proved how good her memory was. It proved yeah. she wasn't a liar. Yeah. 
I mean, it's genius, isn't it? I just that's the job uh, I want. I love it. Isn't it beautiful? In my mind, I want it, but I know myself, I would not have the patience to do it. If I could guarantee I'd find that receipt, I would have all the patience in the yeah. world. But in my back of my mind, I'd be thinking, waste of time, waste of time. <laughs> I ain't never going to find it. I'm never going to find it. But then when you find it, God, can you imagine the acceleration the when you finally find it? Oh. Like, oh. I'm a lady there listening yes. to this thought. I love this bit. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. It's so good. But it's 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 just graft. That's yeah. all it is. Just yeah. God, like grassroots police work. Yeah. It is. Which is mundane and monotonous. Mm-hmm. But it does drive results. Yeah. Right, a few days before they were due to arrest Levi Belfield, <laughs> this is sickening, a journalist from the News of the World phones the incident room. They said that they've heard that they've got a prime suspect, his name's Levi Belfield, and they're going to run it on their front page that Sunday. Poor and And um, I think they wanted to, they'd planned to arrest Levi on the Monday. So now they've had to <laughs> change all their plans so basically the Met were forced to cut a deal with the News of the World reporter and they said right okay please if you don't run this story on Sunday because we are not ready to arrest him on Sunday we promise we'll let you come with us while when we arrest him and then you can have your scoop that way so that's the only way they got around it so you got a barter with something like that oh I know it's just you got to play the game haven't you I mm. think I've watched, when I was researching this case, especially when we get to the Millie Dowler bit, there's a ton of stuff about the, the newspapers and mm-hmm. it's not very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I have put here scumbags. <laughs> so, um... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, yeah, so on the day of the arrest, I think they did, like, simultaneous arrests. They did house arrests on all of his, like, family, friends, acquaintances, blah, blah. Um, and then they and they got Levi on the same day. And they went really early in the morning. He's home in West Drayton, just north of Heathrow Airport. So, again, it's that West, West London mm. area. Um, so, busted in, first thing in the morning, no sign of Levi. They're like, oh, my God. So the police begin frantically searching everywhere they can think of. They even go to like all the travel lodges, all the hotels near the airport. They're like, where is this guy? This is a nightmare because all of his friends have been arrested. He's going to get wind of this. Wherever he's gone, yeah. he's going to get wind of this. Yeah. It, it, we can't keep this under wraps any any longer. We've 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 busted. We've, we've ruined it. We've, we've ruined our case. The geezer's scarpered. Anyway, then Emma, she quietly, she goes to one of the coppers. She points upstairs. She goes, he's in the loft. So, at this point, the, all the police, like, Colin's like, oh, my God, how on earth are we going to get a fellow out the loft safely who bangs people over the head? 
Because you can imagine if you're, yeah. what's the first part of your anatomy that's going to enter the loft? <laughs> it's your head. Yeah, it's, and you're like, they're like, oh my God. So they're starting to plan this whole like health and safety kind of plan in place yeah. and like a risk assessment and everything. And in the meantime, one of the coppers has just gone up there. I just thought, oh, I saw this. I'm just going to go up. Wow. I mean, and Colin was like, he shouldn't have, but thank God he did. Yeah. It saved a ton of, and there oh, was fake. there wasn't any danger because Delfield, because he'd been in bed when they busted in, he didn't have any clothes on, and he hid under the um, glass fibre, you know, the insulation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the police was got in the loft. And he's looking around. He's like, <laughs> I can imagine it must have been. He must oh. have wanted to laugh. It's like, where's Levi? I wonder if he's that big lump underneath. Because <laughs> <laughs> he like say he weighs like twenty yeah. stone. He's he's massive. So, yeah, that's where they found him and he, they went and the fella, the policeman went, come and leave up your get <laughs> And they got him out, handcuffed him. He got dressed in a tracksuit. And um, when they're interviewing him, first of all, he's sitting there and, and um, Colin said he could see him like fidgeting, fidgeting, fidgeting. <laughs> he hadn't had a shower. And so he had all that glass fire all over his body and... I know it's just a small, really, yeah. it's a small win, but it is a little bit it of a win. A win yeah, yeah, exactly. I hope they put that on his bed forever and a day. That's what they should do, really. Yeah, but, have mm. that, motherfucker. So he was taken to Heathrow Police Station where once he was left alone in his cell, he attempted suicide using the cord in his tracksuit bottoms. So at that point, it was very early days, the police didn't know he had a history of suicide attempts, so mm-hmm. they didn't realise he had a cord around his tracksuit bottoms either. So um, this is what he'd done. He sounds like such an idiot. Um, so the uh, he tied one end of the cord around his neck, the other end of the cord around the flush fixture of the toilet, which was only about four feet from the floor, oh, and he's six feet. So then he, managed, he tried to insert his fat head into the toilet bowl in a attempt at a hanging slash drowning attempt. Oh, my God. And it, at some point, he must have changed his mind as he began hollering for help and, like, making probably like splashing noises and stuff so the officers came in and hoisted him out of the toilet (laughs) but again it's just like that's really embarrassing yeah first of all you're caught stark naked uh, trying to hide under some glass fiber and then you try and like suicide yourself in a toilet jesus so yeah so he just sounds like a bit of a pleb to me um anyway so here we are Thursday, March the 2nd, 2006, Belfield, described as a wheel clamper and nightclub doorman, is charged with the murder of French student Amélie Delagrange with five other attacks on women between October the 1st and August the 4th. Sorry, August 2000. October 2001, August 2004, yeah. including the attempted murder of 18-year-old Kate Sheedy. He's also charged with inflicting GBH on and the attempted murder of Irma Jagoshi. So that's a lady that he bumped over the head, the hairdressing lady near London's Heathrow Airport in December 2003, and the false imprisonment of 17-year-old Anna Maria Renee at Hospital Bridge Road, Twickenham, 2001. Mm -hmm. Right, so now we come up to uh, the case of Millie Dowler. Mm -hmm. So 13-year-old Amanda, who's known as Millie Dowler, had vanished into thin air on her way home from school in Weybridge, Surrey, on the afternoon of the 21st of March, 2002 and the ensuing ordeal for her family would drag on for a painfully long time. Millie was snatched in broad daylight while on her way home from school. She'd got off the train at Walton on Thames Station, Surrey, one stop earlier than usual to spend some time in the cafe with some friends. I think she got some chips with her mates. You know what you're like, 13, go down the chip, eh? Um, She'd then find her dad at quarter four to say she'd be home within half an hour. Somehow, while walking that short distance, she was taken in an almost inconceivably audacious kidnapping. Because it is broad daylight. 
full day, like quarter to four in the afternoon. It's mad, isn't it? So yeah. by 7 p.m., her family is so worried that her father calls in, calls the police, reports her as a missing person. Because by seven, no sign of Millie. Yeah. <clears throat> the murder investigation, the largest, largest in the history of Surrey Police, I think it's one of the largest ever, actually, was frustrating and troubling. Thousands of house-to-house inquiries were made, almost 6,000 statements were taken, and dozens of registered sex offenders living within a five-mile radius of Walton-on-Thames were interviewed. The Dowler family had to deal with the glare of suspicion... Um, with the BBC later reporting that in the early days of the investigation, Millie's dad, Bob Dowler, became a suspect in all but name. Can you imagine that? Your child's been kidnapped and all the police were just looking at you. I'm true, yeah. You'd just be so frustrated, wouldn't you? You'd be like, can you stop looking at me and go and find who's yeah. taken my child, please? Oh, it's just... Oh, it's the stuff of nightmares. It is. During the investigation, the police uh, look at CCTV from the Bird's Eye factory... You know, birds are, they make um, crispy pancakes and stuff, don't they? <laughs> Fish fingers as well, Fish I fingers, think. Yeah. Yeah, 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 like frozen yeah, yeah. foods. So there's a big bird's eye factory and there's a rotating CCTV on it, which gives a brilliant That's view good. of station mode, which is the road that Millie disappeared from. So this gives a great view of the whole length of um, the road, but it rotates and for 50 seconds, every rotation, the view of the road can't be seen. And it's in, and apparently there was three of these things on the on the building. This is what I mean by the luck of the devil. So it's in those 50 seconds that Millie had vanished. Also, one of her friends from school had seen her approaching the bus stop from across the road. So her mate was catching a bus from the other side of the road, saw Millie walking towards Millie's bus stop. And then her friend got on the bus, probably paid for a ticket or whatever you use to, I don't know, mm-hmm. school kids probably have a pass. But she's got on, sat at the seat, looked out the window to where Millie should have been and Millie wasn't there. She disappeared. Jesus. So you know fast. you'd think, oh, probably I've I've been like twenty seconds yeah. getting on thirty seconds finding a seat, looking back out the window. You'd expect Millie to be thirty seconds further down the road, but yeah. Millie was no longer there. That is fast. That's so fast. Yeah. So the abduction happened in seconds, and that's why the CCD didn't pick it up. Her mate. I mean, if her mate had got to the window a bit quicker, she probably would have seen yeah. it. Yeah. But this man is just so lucky. Yeah. Well, as you say, fifty seconds because of that rotation. Yeah, and probably less than that with her mate, yeah. the eyewitness. Yeah. Um, so, 20 minutes later, the CCTV does pick up a red Dayo car turning into the road and driving mm-hmm. away. Um, apparently, red Dayos are really rare. Then yeah. there's not It's not like the white um, Korea vans. Yeah. There's not many of them. Anyway, so going back to Millie, there's no evidence that she's run away. And the only thing that she has is her mobile phone, which her mum and dad are constantly phoning, desperately trying to reach their daughter. So, yeah, Millie has got a mobile. I suppose once she starts secondary school, your mum and dad give you a little phone, mm. don't they, just so you can stay in touch. She yeah. called her dad off it, hadn't she, from the cafe. Now I've got a section here about the, the phone and the phone hacking scandals. Mm-hmm. So there was a murder of a little girl called Sarah Payne. Yeah. After the murder of, of Sarah, um, Rebecca, Bo- Rebecca Brooks, who's the editor of the News of the World, is on a mission to create something called Sarah's Law where paedophiles are no longer protected by anonymity, and she goes ahead and she names loads of convicted sex offenders, like in the newspaper, mm-hmm. and it whips up vigilante, vigilantes who take to the streets. I think lots of people like get beaten up and stuff. So now they want to solve the case of the missing 13-year-old and make this story their number one. And the Sun even print their own missing posters of Millie and offer a reward for £100,000. Wow. So that the newspapers think they can crack the case quicker than the police. Like they were there with reporters and yeah. their underhand tactics and everything. And they will stop at nothing to do it. Yeah. Working for the News of the World at this point was described like a cult with Rupert Murdoch at the top, followed by his mentee, Rebecca Brooks. Um, 
the reporters, they go to the school, they hassle her friends. They they do not care. They just want their story. After a while, the mailbox on Millie's phone was filled up. So her mum and dad have phoned so much that there's no more space in Mm -hmm. her mailbox. It just goes straight to you can't leave a message on the phone anymore. But on the 24th of March, this was only, what, um, two days, I think, after she disappeared? When did she go missing? 21st. So three days after she disappeared... Suddenly, it become freed again, freed up again. So Millie's mum said that um, she was suddenly able to leave messages again. So this gives her family hope that Millie's oh, still no. got her phone and she's deleting the messages and she's still using her phone. So they think, oh, brilliant. Millie must still be alive because otherwise, how could this be happening? Yeah. Who, el- who else is going to be? Either it's her murderer or her kidnapper is deleting the messages or it's Millie. Yeah. So they obviously, they're clinging to hope and they think that Millie's still would. alive. Yeah. This came up at the Leveson inquiry years later that it was the News of the World reporters hacking into her phone oh, and deleting messages, which <laughs> led to the newspaper closing down after trading for over 100 years. They'd got a phone number from one of the children at school. How Jesus bad is that? Christ. And then they'd listen to the voicemails on there and run a story about it. Um, there's like a, there's a, there's a code. It's like, you know, when you, any code, I think anything that's got a code, it, your first number, the default is something like one, two, three, four, five, yeah. six, and that's what it was. All they did was they got Millie's phone number off of one of her school friends, a child, phoned it, did this one, two, three, four, five, six. Terrible. Listened to all of her voicemails. Terrible. Mental, innit? It's awful. And in doing so, they accidentally deleted messages and gave that poor family. Yeah, a bit of hope. Disgusting, innit? Yeah. Arseholes. Absolute arseholes. Yeah, absolutely. Scum, scum of the earth. Um, the day before Millie's abduction, there was a schoolgirl called Rachel Cowers, Cowles, 11 years old. She, This happened to her three miles away on the other side of the Thames in a place called Shepparton. A man tried to abduct her on her way home. She gave a good description of the man and his car and her mum and dad reported this attempted abduction to the police. So mm-hmm. um, she described the car as a red... Like a red, I don't think she said Dio, but like a red, yeah. and probably described it as a slow sort of car. And she said that the man driving it was fat and had a skin head, and there was two baby seats in the back, a blue and a pink. So she said she thought, oh, um, he's probably got a little girl and a little boy. Wow. So she's noticed all that. The man said to her, oh, hello, I recognise you. I've just moved into the neighbourhood. I see you walking to school this morning. Would you mind jumping in and showing? I'm a bit lost. Could you show me you? The way back to your house, please, because I've just moved into your road. No. And luckily, uh, Rachel said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And she, like, like I say, she told her mum and dad. They pointed it to the police. And the team on Millie's case never heard about it for years. Oh, no. One day before Millie gets abducted. No. Another little girl, three miles away, had an attempted abduction. They didn't know. Somehow or another, that piece, that vital piece of information just was missed. It's bad, isn't it? Oh, it's awful. Straight away, they could have been looking for the car and they did a good description. Yeah, Um, it's frustrating. Yeah, they would have known. They were looking for a red day. They would have known that. And they could have probably found it straight away because they're really unusual. He was driving his um, girlfriend's car. It was her car. Oh, no. I think it was Emma. Yeah. It was Emma. He was living with Emma. So Emma Mills tells the police about the day that Millie went missing. She remembers it really well because obviously it's in her neck of the woods. It mm-hmm. happened where she lived and she's a mum at this point. So, And it was a big it was a big story, wasn't it, all over the news? Yeah. She remembers um, that Levi... So she was house-sitting, um, not very far away, but, quite, but not, you know, yeah. where Millie went missing. 
her friend's house and Levi went out for the day, said he was going to go to the flat, their flat and decorate it, which was the flat um, just around the back of yeah. Station Mode where Millie lived, where Millie went missing, sorry. And um, she said that she didn't hear from him all day, which was unusual because he's such a control freak. He was constantly phoning her and he didn't phone her all day or anything. And she tried to ring him and the phone was switched off all day. And eventually he came home at about 11 o'clock at night and um, he had on a white tracksuit. She said it was different to what clothes he'd been out, gone out oh, in. Okay. So she knew he'd been to the flat because he must have changed his clothes there. And he brought some chicken home and some beer. So she said they drank, drank the beers, ate the food, went to bed. But about 3.30 that morning, she said he, he, he went, oh, I just can't sleep, I'm going back to the flat. So he took their dog and, as far as she knows, went back to the flat. And... Um, and then um, they moved back to the flat once they'd finished house-sitting and she noticed that all of the bedding had gone from the bed and she was like, Levi, where's all the bedding gone off the bed? Yeah. And he said that the dog had, like, m- messed all over the bed. And she said, well, where is it then? He said, oh, I've chucked it all in the bin. You couldn't salvage that. It was really bad. And she just presumed that he'd taken another woman back there. She she thought it was that. That was oh, the reason no. why. But, um, yeah, obviously that wasn't the reason why. Um, so there we are. They're looking for Millie. She's still a missing person until the 18th of September 2002. When her remains are found, unfortunately, sadly enough, there's a place called Yately Heathwoods in Hampshire, which is 20 miles away. Her remains are found. And um, it turns out that Levi Belfield knows these woods really well because when he used to live with Joe Hannah, yeah. um, she used to go there every weekend for horse jumping. For show jumping oh. so yeah they used to go there every she said every weekend her and levi would go there and um he'd go and walk the dogs while she'd done her show jumping it was in those woods so because when i read about this first of all i was thinking like how does he know to, it seems like he <laughs> he he's really just likes to stay within the localities we yeah. always within a five mile radius of where he was yeah. from by the sounds of it and i was thinking what significance is hampshire to him yeah. that's why that's why yeah, he knows it because of that yeah, yeah that's why he knows it very jesus. well jesus he knows them words like the back of his hand so almost immediately after being convicted for the crimes you know the thing he's named as a chief suspect in the mini dollar case um, so, let's see. So, Levi's trial, um, yeah. began in October 2007. Um, he was tried for the murder of Marsha, the murder of Emily, the attempted murder of Kate, Kate Sheedy. Yeah. And, um, the other two women, so, um, Anna Maria and Irma. Um, during the trial, he he was still up to his old tricks. He would try and intimidate witnesses. Um, I think when Emma testified, she asked for a screen to go up so she couldn't be intimidated by him. Um, but um, Colin Sutton says in his book, um, he's written a book about this whole case called Manhunt, which I can recommend. It's a really, really good, involved, sort of in-depth um, read. He said that like every time Levi did something like that that was intimidating... Um, he wouldn't do it in front of the judge or the jury. No. He's very cunning. So he managed to just intimidate people but not give the game away. He was always trying to be like the affable guy that he always presented to the public in front of the the jury and the judge and all that. Um, so, yeah, after a really, really long trial, um, they did find him guilty, thank goodness. Hey. Yes, there's a happy ending. So 
they found him guilty. Um, they couldn't come to a unanimous on some of them, so they went for majority. But um, they, yes, he was convicted of the two murders and the attempted murder. The other two um, crimes that he was tried for is still open. They couldn't come to a verdict on oh, it. Oh, really? So it's still just sitting there in the background. So I think if ever he tries to appeal or it looks like he's going to get out, they'll be raised, those two crimes against him. Good. So they can do that. But um, uh, yeah, so... So yeah, he got um the judge gave him a whole life sentence for each of the murders, I think. So that's three. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So eventually he did go um like I say, he had another trial for Millie. Mm-hmm. But that was not for a little while later. Yeah. Um the, apparently like the trial, Millie's trial, his defence, his whole defence was just trying to cause reasonable doubt by implicating Millie's dad. So Millie's dad was like felt he said he felt like he was on trial during um Oh no. Yeah, they really were put through the ringer. Oh it's horrible, no, isn't it? That's awful. Mm. You've gone through all that, like losing your daughter. Yes. And then yeah, mm. that's awful. Yeah, so um so yeah, the red the red day again it was quite key. They couldn't find it, obviously he always gets rid of the cars once he's committed a crime in them, but um it did it did turn out to be um it was Emma's car and she said that he said that it got stolen. So she never saw it again. Um Belfield implied that he'd been driving that car when he was interviewed by a Daily Mirror news reporter, mm-hmm. which he gave from prison in two thousand and nine. He said there's not many red dayos floating about in Walton on Thames, so we've got to be realistic about it. Um He said, I did use the Dayo once and I was stopped by the police once in it for speeding. <laughs> Um, so although the car was never recovered, Belfield was charged with Millie's murder in March 2010. Uh, yeah, during his trial, the prosecuting barrister laid out the cold, painful facts of the case with poignant precision. Speaking of Millie's final moments, he said, On this day, an entirely innocent and quite ordinary diversion to a station cafe to buy some chips with some school friends was a decision that cost Millie her life because it meant her taking a fateful journey along Station Avenue where, unbeknown to her, her abductor and killer was soon to strike. So he was eventually found guilty and handed a second whole life sentence. Um, but yeah, the Dowler family were, were like interrogated, absolutely ripped to shreds. Um, her dad had some like kinky magazines and stuff and the police were just all over it. Oh, isn't that terrible? Yeah, they were, they were, got him to read out some... You know when you're a teenager and you're full of angst and you write letters like, oh, I hate my mum and dad, yeah, I hate my life, yeah. everything sucks. They got him, got her dad to read that out in court and things like that. It was just really painful, nasty stuff. Oh, um, terrible. Bob, Bob Dowler said, outside the Old Bailey, our family life has been scrutinised and laid open for everyone to inspect and that they'd pay too high a price for the conviction. He said, during that question, my wife and I both felt as if we were on trial. Um, I bet they did. One thing that is good, I've read this in Colin's book, um, because there was um there was around about I think it was something like twenty nine different um like there could have been twenty nine court like <laughs> what's the word where, where you get you know, crimes. They yeah, could yeah, they yeah. could have Charges. taken they could have charged them in twenty nine. Um, but what they did was they picked, obviously, the most serious ones and focused all the attention on them because they've got limited funds, they've got yeah. limited resources. CPS has to make sure it's spent properly. Yeah. 
So what they did, what Colin did and his team, they did a thing where it's like her justice is my justice. Mm -hmm. So for all of the women, like for instance, Irma and Amory, there was all three of his ex ex wives. Mm -hmm. Um, not to mention many, many other young women and girls. Because he's never coming out, they can take that as their. Yeah, he's been punished for their crimes as yeah. well. So they're never all going to have their day in court, and whether that's right or wrong, there's it's never going to happen. Yeah. But they can take comfort in the fact that the justice that was found for Millie and for Emily and for Marsha and for Kate is also their justice. Here, here. And like we was chatting to Colin earlier, wasn't we? And he said, as important it is that the families and the victims and the survivors get justice, it's even more important in our view that. Um, all of the potential, all of his potential other victims have yeah. been protected. Yeah. Like at the end of Colin's book, he says once Colin, once Levi Belfield was taken off the streets, London immediately became a much safer place for women. Yeah. So that's a really important thing to it take is. away. That that yeah. fellow, he's, he's been in prison for nearly 20 years now. Can you imagine how much havoc he would have wrecked in those last 20 years if yeah. he'd have been left, if they hadn't managed to find him? Yeah. Could you imagine? Yeah. He was slippery as, not slippery as anything, yeah. wasn't he? So um he's a snake. Mm, absolutely. Now we did um I've done a little piece here called Living with Belfield. I wouldn't call it living, I'd call it survival. Yeah. Like all of his ex-wives say it was survival, yeah. every day was survival. Yeah. Uh all three of his exes complained of the same treatment at the hands of Levi. At the beginning of the relationship he would they all said love bomb them. Mm -hmm. I've never read that before, have you? Yeah. But they yeah, all said love it love bombing. bomb, yeah. yeah. And it would be he'd be the perfect partner. Mm -hmm. Then once they moved in together, the controlling and abusive behaviour would begin. First, he'd give him a mobile with only his number in it, yep. so to isolate the women from their friends and family. Then he would stop them from going out and socialising. He'd stop them spending money or even leave the home without his permission. If they disobeyed him, they would be on the receiving end of various punishments, including physical assaults, rape or being locked indoors, um, forced to sit on a stool and forced to have sex with his friends. Oh, he'd destroy their treasured property as well. You can imagine, I can imagine that. Other, sometimes there's some things that literally can't be replaced and he would destroy them. Can you imagine if you had something like your nana giving you or something that was precious to you, he probably would just jump on oh, it. Oh, and it all fall. I can imagine it. Um, it's, yeah, that's just vile. Yeah, he's just a bully, isn't he? So Rebecca Wilson, she had four children with Levi and his eldest daughter, Bobby Louise Belfield, shared memories of him in a documentary that we watched, didn't we, called yeah. My Father, my Dad the Serial Killer. Yeah, really good. Uh, she remembers, she's got memories of him like raping and beating her mum, Becky Wil Wilkinson. Bobby also says her dad used to leer at schoolgirls during the school run. Oh, no. All of his ex-wives said that as well. He'd like hang out the window and shout and beep like and just do that really disgusting sort of like catcalling thing. But can you imagine if you're a little girl and your dad is doing it? I mean, oh, he would take her along when he did his drug deals. He'd get her to like hide um, drugs on her and things like that. She said he was always beeping at girls walking down the street, even though they were in school uniform. He'd shout out, oi, oi, and things like that. Um, so he was he was with Becky for six years mm -hmm. and they had four children together. He raped her twice, once at knife point and once again after she'd left him. And he beat her up so badly that she ended up in hospital several times as well. He stalked her, trashed the house when she left him. Uh, Bobby, who witnessed what became daily beatings of their mum, said, he beat mum up quite a few times that I saw it happen. She said, I felt scared and shocked. It was, wasn't just a few slaps, it was more horrific than that. 
um, all the girls, they all call him Levi. They don't call him dad. They're no, all like really that. glad and relieved that he got a whole life sentence yeah. so that he won't be allowed out. Yeah. And I think they just feel safer knowing that he's locked away and he can't hurt them or their mum anymore. Um, yeah, so poor things. It's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's awful. So, yeah, I think that brings us to the end of that really long case. Oh, what a doozy that one was. <laughs> yeah. I know. Definitely. Wow, that was the one to open with. Yeah. So, thanks for coming back to for Series 6. We hope you've enjoyed it. Nice to see you. Uh, drop in. Um, give us a say, give us a hi on our socials. We're at Blue Murder Club in, um, what you call it, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok and Twitter. Yep. X, it's now known as X. X, yeah, we're on all of those. And, um, yeah, let, let us know what you think of the new series. If you want. New thing. Yeah, if you're, enjoying the, if you're enjoying our podcast, please tell your friends and your family, spread the word. And we also have Patreon. Give us a like and follow, and, yeah, come over to Patreon, see some more. That's where it's at. Yeah, so, yeah, all our links are in our bios, in our social media. And um, we'd just like to thank you very much for joining us this week and have a very nice week indeed. Bye, Felicia.